All right, so I've been making comments about the fact that I'm having a hard time reading my notes. And so I've got glasses now, and they're what they call transitional lenses, which are supposed to mean that I can look out here just fine and read just fine at the same time. But really, it just is like I'm in a fishbowl. Does anyone have transitional lenses? Do these work for anybody? They work for you? Okay, no. <laughs> they work for you? I think I'm going to have to get just regular like bifocals because these are, I'm probably just going to at one point fall straight forward through this thing and, or, you know, jam my hand in, into this while I'm trying to, I'm, it's, it's all, I'm going to try to wear them. They may, they may come off at some point. Um, but uh, I think as long as I'm wearing them, I'm technically slightly smarter, so you should, uh, you should feel good about that. All right, so we are back on the lectionary track this week. With, um, I, uh, for those of you that are rule followers, I apologize that we took four weeks uh, to get through uh, one passage, basically, as we looked at the uh, Pentecost passage. But uh, if you weren't here, I think we talked about some good stuff, some important things, and I hope you will go back and listen to the podcast or watch uh, the videos uh, on those. But we're back on the lectionary track, and today we are looking at, as you heard already, uh, the story out of Luke chapter 10, uh, which is the story of Jesus sending out uh, his 70 followers. Uh, we're not exactly sure what followers are. There's a good chance you can make an argument based on other scripture. It's probably men and women, although we don't know for sure. It's more than just, obviously, the 12 disciples. And he's sending them out ahead of him to places where he is planning on going. Now, some of you, if you had your Bibles out, it may read 72 instead of 70 in your Bibles. Uh, different manuscripts have had different numbers. Uh, the oldest one that they found that they've dated oldest says 70, so I'm going with 70. Um, but if yours says 72, you don't need to go uh, burn the book or anything. You'll be just fine. Um, and I realize you've already heard these verses read once, but I want to go back through them and I want to kind of, we do this every once in a while, I just want to walk through kind of verse by verse and talk about some of the things that are going on here because I think we can find something instructive and good for us as we reflect on uh, what Jesus tells those he is sending out um, at this point in his ministry. Um, and it's not so much about the message he gives them. In fact, there really isn't anything said about the message that Christ gives them. It's more about the medium. It's more about who they are and how they are in the world. And like in most scenarios, um, the medium is, in many ways, is the message here. And so I, I want to, we'll get at that point in a minute, but I want to talk through these verses again. So we're in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and it says this uh, in 1 and 2. It says, After the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and the place where he himself intended to, uh, and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I'm taking these off because, my goodness, everything's moving around. I feel like I'm, uh, I had a couple beers before I'm uh, reading this here. Uh, and trust me, no one wants that long of a sermon if I'd had a couple beers first. So, um, Jesus sends his followers out before him to kind of pave the way for the places he's planning on going. And he tells them there's a lot to be done, but there's very few people to do it. Um, and there's going to be this very kind of particular and unpopular way he wants them to go out, which is what gets into next. It may point towards why there are so few workers, right? Verse 3, go on your way. I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. This is, this is a bad pitch right here. If you're trying to recruit folks, this is a bad pitch. I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. And I'm not sure if you've watched a lot of nature programming, uh, but it usually doesn't go very well for the lambs in the midst 
of the wolves, right? I am sending you out like lambs among wolves, right? No wonder the workers are few. Uh, I think it is safe to say that a lot of lambs would not want to sign up for that job, right? But I would argue that this, really everything we're going to talk about tonight is going to come from verse 3 here. Sending you out like lambs amongst the wolves. I'd argue that this key verse in this section, um, everything else that we're going to talk about is born from this. Everything that follows serves as an extended explanation of what lambs look like among the wolves. It is one example after another of this categorically different kind of creature we are called to be in comparison to how the world typically works. And again, the medium is the message here. You can't overlook or understate how important being the lamb is in this scenario. How we go into this world is of paramount importance. How we are is in large part what we are proclaiming. I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Verse 4, I think we could all say that all these things are going to be how lambs look in this world. Verse 4, carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road, which I know just sounds kind of rude, but I think it just means being singular in your mission, right? Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals. Lambs are, by nature, and in this case intentionally, if you are accepting this and walking into the world, lambs are intentionally vulnerable. They are uh, bad Boy Scouts. They are not prepared. They're going out into this world with no purse, no money, no bag to gather anything with along the way, no sandals, no one to meet along the way to maybe help them out. They don't load up for the journey. They don't prepare. They don't ensure their own comfort and their own safety by managing risks in whatever way they can and planning ahead of time. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's the trip of my nightmares. I like to try and have everything in the car just in case. We've even got a travel potty for our three-year-old right now, which I didn't know existed until we had kids, and it's magic. I've thought about using it myself a couple times, but I haven't had to. But you literally can just put it in the back of the car and tighten it up, and it's, it stays secure, and you can go on the go. I like to be prepared. The sheep have nothing, no purse, no bag, no sandals. They set out into what could be a calloused and cruel world with a posture of vulnerability on purpose. They're vulnerable. Sheep are vulnerable. Verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. That comes from the Jewish term shalom. Shalom is not just peace in the hippie sense. Peace uh, and shalom means everything working as it's intended to. My favorite image of this from one theologian I read was uh, to think of a tapestry. A tapestry is, is all like yarn or whatever, all put together, right? Shalom is everything how it's supposed to be. No tears, nothing frayed, everything working together the way it's intended to work, as God intended. God's will on earth as it is in heaven, right? Shalom. This is the greeting and, and the peace that is passed. Whenever you enter into a house, say peace to this house. Whatever house you enter into, bring peace with you, right? There is no condition laid upon where I will enter, where I will not enter. Who is deserving of this peace or who is not deserving of this peace? There's no determination of worth or unworth of the peace that we have to offer. There's no religious test to pass. This is a big important thing to say to a group of Jewish people who have very specific rules about which houses they can go into, which tables they can eat at. Whatever house you go into, bring 
peace with you. If I'm here, if I'm in a place, I am leading with this peace. I am hoping and wanting this shalom for whoever is in front of me, no matter where I am or who I find myself with in that moment. We even know from the disciples, even if they're in the jail cells, they're seeking the peace of those around them, even the peace of those who have captured them, right? Whatever house you enter into, you first say peace to this house. Verse 6, and if a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. And I know that's a strange phrase, and I'm not going to try and break down scientifically how it works. How do you know if the peace comes back to you or not? That's not the point. But this is yet another example of Jesus' consistent teaching on what uh, they've been called in, throughout the history of theology as a, uh, an ethic of non-resistance. If there's a person of peace there, your peace will rest on that person. If not, it will return to you. It's this insistence that who we are and what we bring remains unaffected by the reception it garners. We offer peace, we offer shalom, a genuine wish for all of the household, uh, their world to work as is intended. We want you to have shalom, but we accept the no. We're not forcing it on anyone. We don't walk into a house and say, you will have shalom whether you like it or not. I am shalom in this house. It's non-resistance. There's this principle you find all throughout, especially particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. That's where you get into turning of the cheek, all the non-violence that's there. It's this non-resistance. After all, true peace, true shalom cannot be achieved by overpowering someone and enforcing it upon them. Obedience can come that way. Shalom cannot. And our job here and always is not to be successful, but to be faithful, to be kind, to be loving, to be generous. Not successful. Success may happen or it may not. Verse 7, remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Right? Once you find yourself in a house, offering them God's peace, accept what is then offered to you. Don't keep your eye out for a more attractive deal someplace else. Don't shop around for something that fits you a little bit better. Don't try to upgrade your accommodations. Accept what is given to you. And perhaps most shocking in here, maybe the most shocking thing he says to this group of of devout Jews, eat whatever they offer. Eat whatever they offer, right? Now, this isn't a matter of like whether or not you would make it on one of those shows where you travel to a foreign country and you have to eat something that you would never normally eat and you may be uncomfortable with. It's not about exotic foods or stunt eating. This is about reprioritizing things for people who know what they are and are not supposed to do in the world if they're going to please God. This is a prioritizing of people before their own religious conviction and practice. People over practice. Love over religious purity. It's a humble acceptance of their hospitality, even if in the eyes of your friends it's going to make you unclean or less than. It's another brand of non-resistance. I don't dictate all the terms upon which we will encounter each other. I accept your yes, I accept your no, I eat what's before me, right? This would have been shocking for them to hear. 
maybe the most difficult part for them to swallow. I didn't mean to make a pun there. I did. I intended that pun. Let's say that. That makes me feel better. Verse 9, cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Once again, indiscriminate good. Help whoever is before you with no determination for how deserved it might be by that person. Cure the sick who are there. And do it with no effort to garner favor or power for yourself, right? Do good works in the name of the kingdom of God, not to gather a crowd for yourself. Because you can absolutely gather for yourself through good works. Like, that is something that happens. As you, as you might know, my job during the week at the, at the foundation I'm a part of is I basically help give away other people's money. Like, that's part of what I do. And I, I literally have a little bit higher standing in certain circles in town because I give away other people's money. It makes no sense. It's stupid. But there's a certain kind of power you can get from generosity, even if it's not your own. Like, and, I, and I've had people sometimes take me to lunch or something, and they think I've got money to give them, and I'm like, I don't actually have any money. That's, you know, someone else's stuff. But you can gather this kind of steam even through good works. Instead, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Don't garner anything or power or favor for yourself. Verse 10, but whenever you enter into a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Verse 12, and, and by the way, the lectionary cuts us off at 11 because verse 12 is just a little bit messy and I don't believe in doing that. So verse 12, I tell you on that day, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. It's a lovely image. But here we see another example of even of God's love, but also God's judgment, which I think is part of God's love. That's a larger conversation, but God's judgment through non-resistant love. Our job is to offer God's peace wherever we find ourselves. Our job is to vulnerably heal and love whoever is before us. If they refuse us or the peace we offer, we do not call down fire from heaven, which is what his disciples wanted to do, Allah Sodom. You know, they've asked him specifically if they could do that at one point. We don't call down fire from heaven. We accept the no. Even the dust on the feet gets wiped off if that's what you want, right? And that was actually a typical practice that Jews did back in those days that they came from a foreign land. They'd literally knock the foreign land off their feet before they came back to Israel. You accept the no. You follow their wishes fully, wiping off even the dust from your feet, right? And you remind them again of God's kingdom. And remember, they do not require your judgment. They do not require your judgment. This is one of those situations that we see a lot in Scripture, which is judgment comes in the form of people getting what they ask for. You don't need to judge. It's not your job to judge. A far worse judgment will be people not wanting the peace of God among them. Judgment isn't our job never was, never will be. After all these verses, the 70 return, and Jesus reminds them once again 
that lambs do not revel in the power that they have, right? Uh, verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. In other words, we know how this is going to end, right? Indeed, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions all over the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, right? We don't start to feel really good about ourselves because of what's going on around us. Pretty interesting passage, the sending out of the 70, right? I find it endlessly intriguing that God sends out these disciples only with instructions on how to be and not much of anything on what to say. And I find that intriguing because so much of my life I was taught almost exclusively about what exactly was to be said. That's almost all we talked about, right? I was trained on how to defend the faith, how to have the correct theological answers, how to win people. Quote-unquote win was the word that we use a lot. We were here to win. I was sent out to win people for God, which essentially meant overpowering them, out-arguing them, you know, which is you know, always the way you want to make a new friend is just to overpower them. Whether it was personal witnessing or in the public arena through, arena through my voting and politics, we were trying to win for Jesus. Again, which always means some form of overpowering, right? By the framework I think set up in these passages, you could say that I was trained and then sent out like a consecrated wolf among wolves. Same tactics, same basic nature, different name, different banner to do it under, right? And yet here Jesus is telling his disciples to do something very different, at least from what I was taught. Go out and be vulnerable, be dependent, love without condition, offer peace to everyone. Do not judge them. Accept others' graciousness. Accept others' rejection in the same way you accept their graciousness. Accept it all in the same spirit of non-resistant humility. Don't overpower anyone. Don't garner anything for yourself. Don't try to win. Be lambs in a world of wolves. The lambs don't win. They never win in a world of wolves. They can't compete and be by nature lambs. Be qualitatively different than this world, not a sanctified version of the same old thing, right? The medium is the message. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but it seems to me that we still have a lot to learn. I know I still have a lot to learn about this. And I fear that in general, we as Christians are known more for being wolves than lambs in this world. I feel like I've been a bit of a broken record. I'm surprised some of you still come each week after 15 years. But I feel like I've been a bit of a broken record about this deep like, fear and uh, discomfort I have with the way faith has played itself out in our culture in the last 20 years, particularly. At least that's when I've been aware of it. Particularly this deep-seated uh, discomfort I have with what our country's politics does to the kind of faith that Christ has been teaching us to possess. 
I started being personally very uh, disturbed by this right around 9-11. And when I kind of was in seminary and I was processing theology and watching the way Christians reacted to that new and scary reality, I thought it started to tell some truths about us, about me, that uh, were indicted by Jesus' words and teachings. Now, I don't consider myself to be particularly prophetic or able to read uh, the tea leaves, which is not a scriptural idea, but you know what I mean, or anything like that. But even as much as I have talked about it or obsessed over it in the last 20 years, I think I underestimated how bad it was going to get. I think, I think the great tragedies of the Christian church in this time, in our place, in our culture, in history is probably twofold. First is probably our complete inability to address consumerism and what that means for the world. That's another talk at another time for which I am uh, first in line to be judged and uh, I may not even want to talk about it. But my sense is that when history looks back on us, uh, consumerism is going to be one of the big indictments against us. The second is the way that we have allowed our particular time and place, our American politics, to turn what should be a church of lambs into a voracious pack of wolves. We will excuse just about any idea or behavior in the name of winning. We will happily bring about division and resistance to every household necessary to get what we want. We will demonize the other, we will pass judgment on them, we will dismiss them altogether, all in the name of following Jesus. I'm afraid when we look back on this kind of generation, our generation right now, we will realize that we have been more uh, discipled and sent out by cable news than Christ. And our culture is worse for that wear. If we have ears to hear it, I think if you listen, you will now hear constantly people in the name of Jesus, people calling themselves Christians, constantly promoting an ends justify the means morality. As if all that matters is the result, all that matters is winning, not how we get there. And I don't think this could be less Christian. Even if where you get is, is the ideal goal, right? With Christ, again, the medium is the message. How we get there is every bit as important as where we end up. I'm going to get a little judgy right now, but the awful things that I saw Christians post this last week while taking a victory lap about Roe versus Wade were a little disturbing. The pride and arrogance and judgment being proudly displayed regarding a topic that we as Christians should never talk about with anything other than humility and sobriety and care and grace. It was the stuff of wolves who are no longer even pretending to be lambs. Now, I assume you're with me, but I desperately want a culture that affirms life in every sense, like I think everyone in this room does, even if we disagree on the mechanics of things and how laws should be passed. But that is not how you get there. You cannot build God's kingdom with the devil's tools, right? And that's what I kept thinking about this week as I I saw this, and I I saw some truly horrible things posted by Christians which should, I guess should be more rare than it is, but um, you haven't been on my Facebook timeline if, if you think it is rare. So maybe we need to take a breath and we need to be reminded of how God has sent us into this world. How right your beliefs may be 
or not be is less important than who and how we are in this world. It is not easy to be a lamb here. In fact, it's seen a new revival as a slander. People calling each other sheep or sheeple, which is one of the new words, like this is now the new slander, right? We, it, it's, it, it's, I hear it a lot now. It's not easy to be a lamb in this world. But there is no other way to be sent out by Christ. There is no other way to build the kingdom of God. He sends lambs. Those who open themselves up to being vulnerable, to being at risk, to maybe even being overpowered and losing, but to never compromise the love that they have received from God. Because again, the medium is the message. And only lambs can carry the good news. So maybe the question for us is, how are we in this world right now? Are we wolves or are we lambs? Let's pray.